Hello, hello. Welcome to episode four of the Threadwork podcast. I am your host, Ross Kale, and I'd like to thank you for choosing to uh, listen. It's nice to have you here. I'm recording the intro to this episode in my garden. It's a lovely warm evening and the sun is just about set, so if there's a sweepstake running each fortnight as to where it's going to be recorded, my lounge or my garden, then congratulations to you if you guessed the latter. Good job. If you're a regular listener, then welcome back. You're the best. But I suspect many of you will be listening to Threadwork for the very first time this week, and that's likely to be down to my guest this episode, the first guest to have appeared on Threadwork at all so far, Jeffrey Lewis. If you know me or have listened to any of the previous episodes, you'll know that I am a huge fan of Jeffrey's music and artwork. I first heard his music on the Guardian Music podcast where they reviewed Roll Bus Roll, and it was love at first listen. That was way back in 2009. And Roll Bus Roll was taken from the album MRI, which is easily one of my most listened to and treasured albums of all time. I saw him tour with that same album at Bristol's Thecla in April of the same year and have seen him live with The Junkyard, The Drams and most recently Lost Bolts about five or so times since. Here are some things about Jeffrey paraphrased from various articles and his own bio. Born and raised in New York and having travelled extensively throughout his life, often as a touring musician, Jeffrey is also the writer and illustrator of his own self-published sporadic comic series, Fuff, which is sometimes autobiographical, sometimes weird and disturbing, and frequently hilarious. He's given lectures on Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, uh, Watchmen, has written for outlets such as the New York Times and The Guardian, and of course regularly releases music of, to my mind, the highest order. I caught up with Jeffrey in Bristol, England, at the end of March 2018, shortly before he and the current incarnation of his band, Lost Bolts, went on stage to perform. He was kind enough to spend half an hour or so chatting with me in the sometimes noisy backstage area, with various sound checks going on, and was as interesting, engaged and forthcoming as I could have hoped for. Just before we get into it, a few pointers. Firstly, there is one instance of sweary language and a brief section referencing certain consumable recreational activities. So if you are easily upset by such things and or are planning on listening with those with tender ears, then do with that information what you will. Secondly, there were one or two technical issues that manifest towards the end of the chat. Namely, the primary recorder stopped recording, and so when cutting this together I needed to swap to the backup. I'd like to thank all of the podcasts I've listened to over the years that made me even think to take a backup in the first place. Let that be a lesson to all of us. And finally, I realised when listening back to the initial recording that my interview skills needed some work, and so I've taken a slightly different tack to this episode than perhaps I will on future ones. It's turned out okay though, I reckon. Alright, that's enough for now. Uh, I'll be back briefly towards the end, but without further delay, let's join Jeffrey Lewis answering the first question. When did you first become aware of music? Uh, I guess I first got into music maybe around age 13, 14, uh, starting to hear some classic rock radio that interested me. Um, I would always just listen to whatever was on the radio, 80s pop stuff, but I felt you know, I don't know, my personal connection to it, my, my sense of wanting to buy certain albums or identify myself in a certain way based on the music that I listened to was kind of something that started with early teenage years and started with rock and roll, um, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Dylan, Hendrix, the Grateful Dead. 
and things was there, like that. Was there, particular, was, there, was there a station that was particularly important to that, or was it just jumping around the dial? Um, yeah, it was, God, what was the name of the station? It was um, uh, K-Rock, was the New York City classic rock station that was the playlist that, you know, would have, uh, like, White Room by Cream oh, yeah. and Time by Pink Floyd. 92.3 K-Rock. certain tracks that just really gripped me. Uh, you know, even something like uh, ones that didn't really end up making it into my personal record collection, but really made a deep impression on me at that age where I would like take these songs off the radio. But, uh, you know, Hotel California, even though I'm, you know, I had never identified myself as an Eagles fan. And, I, you know, I try to you know, shove that aside as an embarrassing thing, like, oh, I was never into that, but it just, you know, just blew me away uh, when I was first sort of discovering rock and roll, and uh, I mean, it's, it's an awesome track, but somehow the the political or aesthetic uh, ambiance of certain bands made them cooler to associate with than others, the same way as a teenager, say, The Doors was, you know, one of the great most awesome bands, but somehow when going from high school to college, a band like The Doors just isn't cool anymore, so I was able to continue to identify myself as a fan of The Grateful Dead and Bob Dylan and The Rolling Stones and then, you know, The Velvet Underground, although that came to me a little later than, than the high school years. You know, certain bands or Creedence Clearwater Revival you could still say you were into them and seem cool, but somehow the Eagles and the Doors, and I was also thinking of uh, Golden Earring. I remember stuff, uh, you know, on the radio that I would hear when I was like 14, when I didn't know who these bands were, or I didn't know anything about the chronology of uh, which albums came earlier than later. If you keep the door closed, the heat will keep you up. If you leave this, I can feel the heat going down the corridor. Right. Ah, cool. Okay. Cool. That's the best, always. No sure. Whatever, whatever works best. If uh, if you want to close it, that's good. That's the same. I close it now. But one thing, if you keep it closed, yeah, it'd be nice and warm in here. Awesome. Oh, much appreciated. Nice one. It was at this time that the kind and friendly owner of the venue struck up a lovely conversation with us, asking Jeffrey where he was from and how he was getting on, until an opportunity was found to politely mention that we were in the middle of an interview. This curtailed the chat but didn't stop him from busying himself in the dressing room which can be heard in the background. We eventually resumed and I asked Jeffrey if he was ever concerned with what was deemed cool or not. Well, for me, uh, honestly, a lot of it was the friend group that I ended up in in college and certain things that they sneered at, you know, freshman year of college when, uh, you know, they were cool with stuff like early Pink Floyd, you know, Sid Barrett was cool, but The Wall was like cheesy, so 
at that point, I was like, well, okay, you know, I'm into early Pink Floyd, but all the later records. But the thing is, I had all the stuff by that point. You know, I had every Doors record. I had every Pink Floyd record. Uh, because these things were all available so cheap on vinyl in that era. Because I'm talking, uh, you know, early 90s, mid 90s. Um, I was in high school in, you know, 90, 91, 92, 93. So uh, that was like the perfect time to be getting into music and the perfect time to be getting into. 60s music because that was when everybody was dumping their vinyl and buying CDs. So you could just, for you know, a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, four dollars, five or six bucks if you were really desperate, if you were like, you really had to have that particular Stones album, you might spend seven dollars on it. But almost all these records were findable incredibly cheap. So um, even though I had no money, Every time I had a few bucks, you could go to the record store and be like, "Oh, I don't have this, you know, I don't, I don't have this Led Zeppelin record yet." So soon you have. Every, there's only ten Led Zeppelin albums, you know. There's only like ten Pink Floyd albums. There's, well, and of course you can tape stuff from friends also. So a lot of this was like, "Oh, you've got the first two Black Sabbath records. Let me just tape those onto cassette." So yeah, the, the access to discovering all of that classic rock um, was just the perfect thing at the perfect time. And it, it's a bit sad, really, because that stuff is so awesome. There's really, I've, I've, I'm so steeped in music, of course, like any voracious music listener. I mean, I'm 42 now, but when you listen to some of those classic rock tracks, I made a mixtape for my, my good friend when it was his uh, 16th birthday or something like that. And he still has this mix, and he, it was just his birthday recently. Um, uh, like a few weeks ago and I went over and he, to his house and he's like, you know, I still have that birthday mix you made for me uh, and he like put it on and some of those tracks that I loved then, there's nothing, I've really found nothing better since uh, Tales of Brave Ulysses by Cream or uh, Time Has Come Today by the Chambers Brothers. Like certain things that I was already into at age 16 uh, even though I knew nothing about punk yet, I knew nothing about a million things I knew nothing about. I only knew about a small handful of records, but that classic rock stuff to me is still, uh, you know, some of the best music ever made.
I mentioned that there's a theory that says the music that one listens to between the ages of 16 and 20, give or take a bit, is instrumental in defining one's musical taste for the rest of their lives, and I was interested in his view on that. Well, there are certain bands that I would consider among the greatest bands ever, that uh, stuff that has really blown my mind, that I didn't discover or get into until later in life. I mean, I didn't start discovering or exploring indie rock or punk stuff uh, really till after I was already out of college and say The Fall, who I would consider my top three favorite bands of all time probably. I didn't, you know, start getting into the fall until I was, uh, you know, probably 21, say, 22, or maybe even a little older. I'm trying to remember what year and what circumstances. Um, so, no, I would have been maybe 25. So there were there are bands that are, you know, very important. Crass, another band that I didn't start hearing and really paying attention to until I was in my mid-twenties. So there, there are certain things that um, I think you're always looking to repeat that same high of the earlier stuff. But And there really is, like I was saying, that, you know, Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones, like there really is nothing better than that. Uh, Planet Caravan by Black Sabbath or something like that. You know, there's like, these tracks are just so great. Um, you might find other stuff that's as great, but unless you completely change your aesthetic and get into opera or something like that, or get into jazz and like rock becomes boring to you, there's nothing that really tops some of those early discoveries. discuss discovering music we then turn to the concept of rediscovery and whether things can come back around just the last couple of years some of that later pink floyd stuff i've finally been coming back to um where partially because you outgrow any of this stuff being a threat to your identity you no longer have an identity that's based on listening to certain music and excluding other music it's like okay i've grown up to become a person like now i'm just a person so it doesn't fucking matter if I like the wall. That doesn't mean I'm this kind. Of, you know, oh, I thought you were this kind of person, but you know, if you actually like, uh, you know, LA woman by the doors, then like you're kind of like that kind of person. It's like, yeah. well, now at this point, all right, I'm, I'm in my 40s, so whatever kind of person I am is like based on what I've actually done with my life over the last 20 years, not like necessarily what I 
you know, the few albums that I would identify myself by. So I have had a, a really good time re-listening and rediscovering some of that stuff. I mean, I just, uh, last week, I was in a pizza place in Queens and they had on uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, like just the first, the intro part, the whole extended instrumental intro. And listening to it without the judgment of like, oh, later Pink Floyd is like cheesy and if you're into punk rock, like you can't like late period stadium Pink Floyd. But just listening to it as a piece of music, I'm like, this really is awesome. It's so cool when it starts, it like drones on this one chord for so long and then when it finally changes the chord, it's like, oh, it's just, you know, it's awesome. It's great. Like, even if, you know, Sid Barrett is cooler than David Gilmore, whatever, you know, whatever you want to say about it. Like, they did a freaking bang up job when they, when they put that stuff together. got onto the subject of scenes and I asked if he'd ever personally identified with a scene or movement. I never had an identity as a punk or as a goth uh, or as a metalhead or any of... The only one that I ever was was a hippie. So from discovering classic rock and then basically my identity through all my teenage years and into my early 20s was, you know, I'm a hippie. I have long hair, wear tie-dye, bell-bottoms, patches on my clothes, um, you know, maybe a peace necklace, uh, Grateful Dead patches on my backpack, or whatever it is. Like, that's, you know, totally hippied out. That's my uh, music identity tribe. Like, I, you know, if I go someplace, like, I'll hang out with the hippies or whatever. But weirdly, I, I was kind of uh, on the outskirts of that because I never, I, I was only actually doing hippie drugs for, like, one year. Of my life, I was. By the time I was in college, I was already. I was not smoking pot. I was not taking acid. I was like, so I didn't even like really. I looked like a hippie, but I didn't really hang out with the hippies because I wasn't. It just had become such a drug. By that, by the by the time that you're old enough to like do all those drugs, that's what a lot of the hippie scene is about. And for me, it was just about the music and the aesthetic of it. I freaking loved this. You know, and still do the psychedelic posters, the uh, '60s underground comics, '60s mainstream comics, like '60s Marvel comics, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, and that stuff is so psychedelic, and to me, so tied in in my person, in, in, you know, in my experience of what I think of the uh, the '60s and classic rock. You know, I just picture, you know, you listen to uh, a Grateful Dead song. There's something about it that kind of seems like a comic book in some ways. There's something that relates to me between, uh, you know reading a Silver Surfer comic book and listening to Jimi Hendrix, like it's so cosmic, it's so, uh, all of that stuff kind of goes hand in hand. So that was what I was identifying with more than like a person that knew the difference between uh, this kind of weed and that kind of weed.
was interested in what inspired him to start writing and playing music. This is what he had to say. You know, when I started making friends in uh, people that were into rock and roll, a lot of them played music. Uh, you know, there are people that played people that played guitar, and then somebody played bass, somebody played drums. So um, they were all like musicians, and I, I was like, oh, I can like hang out with them and play music too, and not, you know, nobody was playing piano, and I had taken a little bit of piano lessons in my youth, you know, maybe when I was like 10 or something, I had like a year of piano lessons. I never went very far with it, but I was like, somehow I told them, you know, I've played piano, they're like, do you play anything? I was like, well, I played piano, you know, I learned some scales or something when I was like a kid. So that became the instrument that uh, I would play when they would get together and play. But they were like real musicians. And uh, I did start studying piano more seriously at that time, 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, you know, and just trying to jam with them, like playing traffic songs, playing, you know, Jethro Tull, and, uh, but that, Santana, Grateful Dead, a lot of Grateful Dead, Rolling Stones, but a lot of that kind of fed into my interest in psychedelic music more than just the rock part of it, because from a psychedelic perspective, um, being a technically great musician was not as important, you know, that's like, Interstellar Overdrive, it was just like, let's do a jam on Interstellar Overdrive. Let's play uh, Adam Hartmother. Let's do uh, some Grateful Dead jam, jam where it's like, we can just make noise for, you know, the song will just turn into like, what kind of like weird feedback can I get out of this keyboard speaker? So, you know, my interest in psychedelia was partially that kind of de-skilled, like what interesting sounds can I make without being as good a musician as these other people? So, from that, um, the actual interest into writing songs, I guess I sort of messed with writing songs a little bit in college, but I was so, it was like kind of very rudimentary and I wasn't that great a musician, but it was from, you know, discovering Sid Barrett's solo stuff, the, uh, uh, Opal, which was so raw and like disturbing and lo-fi. On a distant shore, miles from land, stands the ebony totem in ebony sand, a dream in a mist of grey. On a far distant shore, the pebble that stood alone. Driftwood lies half buried Warm shallow water sweeps shells So the cockles shine And also, in my interest in weird 60s music, discovering the first Fugs album, which is also extremely raw and lo-fi and disturbing. Um, and then reading an article about this guy, Daniel Johnston, who the article, I had never heard of him, I knew nothing about him, and this must have been around 94 or something, and the article said that he was like an American Sid Barrett because he was mentally unstable and he had these like weird, you know, raw home recordings. And I was like, well, if he's like Sid Barrett, I have to check this guy out. 
uh, and it was maybe about a year until I finally heard any of Daniel Johnston stuff, and it just, you know, it wasn't love at first listen, it was like, I thought, I liked it at first, and then my brother Jack also heard, heard it, and like, he got really into it, he was like, you know, we both sort of got into it, and he sort of got me even more into it, because he really loved it, and I was like, yeah, you're right, this is really great. Um, and that really, uh, and discovering more of Daniel Johnston's recordings, and that approach, which is just the total opposite of the very technically skilled, like, you know, all right, I'm never going to be Jimi Hendrix, obviously, but Daniel's music is, like, so awesome in its own way, because it's just so personal and clever and simple, and it doesn't matter how you play, it doesn't matter how you sing, it doesn't matter how you record this stuff. There's a way to be totally great from a different angle, and that kind of taught me what songs were. Um, so you didn't have to write lyrics like Bob Dylan, and you didn't have to play guitar like Keith Richards or whatever. You could just... Showed you what was possible. Yeah, you could strip away all of that and still have something powerful and great. So that, really, that lesson about what, what songs are um, started me you know, writing the songs that basically form the uh, bedrock of uh, what I'm doing here now, 20 years later, playing uh, playing these songs. Some of those same songs that were the first songs that I wrote in uh, 1997 um, are still some songs that I play today, and just the it's all just kind of evolved, but um, it's still pretty close to that essential bedrock of, a, you know, I still don't really know how to play guitar solo, and uh, that's uh, yeah. I mean, I've certainly gotten way, way better over the years, but you know, my skill set is more just in the uh, making a song rather than in any technical uh, part of that.
As a musician that tours frequently and extensively, I was interested in what, if anything, he and his band listened to on the road. Well, I've, um, I've gone through a number of different musicians that have traveled with me over the years. So each group of people or combination of people that I'm with um, tolerate different things in the car. Um, and... Personally, I think it's pretty bad for band morale when people are listening to their own stuff. I feel like when there's a member of the traveling group that's just listening to stuff on their headphones, that's like one of the signs that that person is kind of divorced from the group experience and they're probably not going to stay in the band that much longer. It's like one of those things in the Vietnam War movies where like there's one member of the squad that like starts to go a little crazy and like you know that that's the person that's gonna you know lose their shit and like either get killed or like massacre some villagers or something and it's the it's the first signs of, of, of cracking so yeah listening to stuff together is important to me uh, and seemingly to the group morale but finding what people want to listen to together yeah, for a long time it was just, you know, music, interesting music. What can we play each other that would, like, be cool? What do we agree on? But then, uh, probably around 2009, 2008, um, we discovered uh, audiobooks. And that was, like, this revelation. Like, we can learn stuff while we're going to be in the... You know, if we're... Especially on a U.S. tour where you're on the road, you know, long drives, five, six, seven, eight hours a day sometimes. Well if we're going to spend our lives doing this, like we can, there's so much stuff that's interesting to learn about. So we just started voraciously getting all these audio books and listening to them. Um, at that point, it was literally like getting a whole thing of CDs. It was like, here's, you know, the, uh, some anthropology book or some book about, uh, you know, history or science or anthropology or politics. Um, you know, it's a 14 CD set or something. So just, you know, starting listening to these audiobooks, and then eventually, when you could download audiobooks, then it became easier. Then you just travel with them on your iPod or something. So, yeah, love the audiobooks. Um, you know, a history of the Middle East, um, the uh, the history of the development of religion, uh, or stuff about music. Uh, you know, the the Kim Gordon autobiography, or uh, you know, anything of that nature. Um, the history of music in New York City, or, you know, stuff like that. Just loved it. But then as the current band has took shape in the last couple of years, uh, you know, going on three years now with this lineup, they're just not into the, you know, they don't have, partially, I think, because they have not spent as much time on the road in their lives as I have. So they're not at the point where they're like, well, damn, we need to do something useful with this time. So you maybe another few years, they're going to start wanting to listen to audiobooks just so that they feel like they're doing something with their time on the road where you're not just, like, spending seven hours looking out the window. But I guess we, you know, we still, we talk. You know, we might listen to a certain, or if we talk and then 
conversation turns towards a certain song, um, somebody might bring it up to play it. Uh, a lot of times I'll try to record the set from the night, at, at the night and then during the day. Um, they never want to do it, but I think it's important uh, to record the set and then listen to it in the car. Because we try different stuff every night, and um, sometimes songs are taking shape on the road. Sometimes there's old songs we haven't done in a long time. I think it's important to listen to it and have a, you know, just discuss it, hear what it sounds like. This was really cool where you did that thing on that song. Like, let's keep that as part of it, or you know, this Next this part of the end. Or something yeah, like yeah, it's it's very effective, and it also really provides an objective view because the next the way that you feel about a gig the next day. You might think, oh man, I really screwed up that one part. And then when you listen to the recording, you're like, oh no, actually, it sounds fine. Or you might, or any, anything like that, where you're like, man, I'm so, f all right, did we lose that it? That one's gone, that's, yeah. that's fine. That's, that's the least important of the, of the lot. That's just the time. So. Yeah. You know, you might, you might be fuming like, God damn, I can't believe the, you know, the bass player was singing so loud through the whole set. It was like drowning out every time every time that vocal came in, it was like infuriating me on stage. It was like drowning everything out. Why do they have to scream so loud? And then you listen to the recording and you're like, that's totally fine. You know, so you just, you kind of let good, things that you like were upset about suddenly reveal themselves to be no problem at all. Cause we used to have a tradition of like discussing the set the next day, but then you're just in this subjective world of, but then when you actually hear it, you know exactly what, uh, what actually happened. Finally, I asked Jeffrey if he could identify any threads that ran through all of the music that he was into. Um, I would say that when I've thought about that, because there's a, you know, from rap to hardcore punk to psychedelic music to, you know, jazz or whatever, you know, whatever stuff I've gotten into or, I think, one thing that mostly uh, is similar is um, not many love songs. I feel like that even when I was a little kid, I really liked Michael Jackson songs on the radio because they were the only ones that weren't love songs. You know, Madonna and Prince and all these other 80s songs were like, let's go dancing and have sex and I love this person so much or I want this person so much or you know, and Michael Jackson was always like the one that stood out as different. He was like talking about gangs or horror movies or, you know, weird stuff. There was like interesting stories. And the love stuff just seems, every, all the songs were like the same and like a boring topic. So that's part of why, you know, discovering classic rock, it was like, whoa, they're talking about, uh, you know, really psychedelic stuff, like a you know, flying through outer space or, or political stuff. Uh, you know, there's so many other things to talk about other, other than um, like, let's go to the club and hook up. So that, you know, rap also, like the narratives, even though a lot of the gangster narratives get pretty samey in their own way. And similarly, you know, even a lot of like garage rock, which I love also, 60s, 60s garage rock stuff. A lot of that is love songs, and to a, to a lot of people, they would sound a bit samey. But once you're kind of into it, just like the, you know, the attitude and the... So, yeah, I can't say that... I mean, there's, there's plenty of love songs that I'm also pretty into. 
But that, yeah, that idea of like using a song to tell a different kind of story, to talk about stuff. Well, I don't know, now I realize I contra I'm contradicting myself because Daniel Johnston is like a lot of love songs. Oh, Jeffrey Lewis there. Huge thanks again to him for chatting to me. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, one of the main points of the podcast is to try and work out what it is that links together all the music that a person likes. And so if that's a question that has sparked some consideration in your own mind and you feel like sharing your thoughts, then please do. Threadwork at threadwork.net is the email address. Go to Twitter at threadworkpod or at Ross Kale, or even add a comment on the website. Equally, if you work on the basis that you like Jeffrey Lewis and I like Jeffrey Lewis, then perhaps you might be interested in what other music I like. And so free, feel free to check out the other episodes in the series so far. Your favourite new discovery might just be lurking in there somewhere, or not. Okay then, um, please rate and review on iTunes, Acast if you feel like it, but more than that, please share Threadwork to anyone you feel may enjoy it. Or uh, in this particular instance, who uh, is a fan of Jeffrey Lewis and maybe hasn't heard... Of, uh, of, of where to find this big thanks as always to producer Bod for invaluable production assistance and we're going to leave you with two cover versions by Jeffrey one of Crass and the other of Daniel Johnston full track listing in the episode notes I've been Ross Carroll this has been episode 4 of Threadwork and I'll see you next time cheers Of course they fucking do. But they don't take any notice of what the public think. 
They're so hyped up with TV, they just don't want to think. They'll use you as a target for demands and for advice. And when you don't want to hear it, they'll say you're full of vice. But do they owe us a living? Of course they do, of course they do. Do they owe us a living? Of course they do, of course they do. Do they owe us a living? Of course they fucking do. of us who make it there. 